Soper. This is Teen People, the podcast where I interview real people who were in Teen People magazine as young adults. Where are they now? That's the premise of this podcast, so join me as I find out. So this episode is a Teen People tribute episode. I don't really think of my podcast as being about Teen People magazine. It's about my guests and why they were in Teen People and what they're up to now as people in their 30s and 40s. But this month, January 2023, is the 25th anniversary of Teen People magazine. So I thought I'd celebrate with an episode featuring a few of the guests I've interviewed since I started this podcast in the spring of 2020. Teen People was published between 1998 and 2006, and while their bread and butter was celebrities, their heart and soul was real teen content. They figured, why talk to kids about what they should be interested in when they could involve them in the making of the magazine? They were also very savvy in that they widened their audience to include boys. This diversified their content away from stuff like diets and made good business sense too. In 1998, one advertising executive said, I'm hoping it will widen our reach to the point where we might pick up some young men who we don't usually get with YM or Seventeen. At the time, Christina Ferrari was Teen People's managing editor. In 1998, she told Advertising Age that teen people would not use slang, since their focus groups told them that teenagers didn't want to read articles in a vocabulary they perceived as theirs alone. She said they know adults are putting out these titles, and they can spot fakery a mile away. When Time Inc. announced a spin-off of People in 1997, editors and executives began to think about what to call it. Using the word teen might turn off older readers, said Christina Ferrari, which is a valid point, because today's teens are tomorrow's 20-somethings. And she wondered whether the People brand meant anything to teenagers in the late 1990s. Focus groups were presented with a few options, 411, 21 Down, and The Mix, along with Teen People. Turns out, the focus groups liked Teen People the best. Keep it simple, right? Teen People was introduced as a monthly magazine with a base rate of 500,000 copies. After only six issues, Teen People boosted that rate to 800,000, and by the end of 1998, they raised it again to 1.2 million. In the year 2000, Teen People's publisher Anne Zarin was profiled in Advertising Age. She said, We're doing things that have never been done before. She attributed Teen People's success to, quote, a different business model. Total reader involvement was the magazine's secret weapon. At the time, Lear Cohen was president of Island Def Jam. He said that Zarin's strategy of mining her young audience gave Teen People this strong competitive edge. He said she has purchasers of the magazine become quasi-employees. What better way to know what they're into than to have a thousand kids telling you who's in, what's out, who's over. He referred to the magazine's trend spotters as cyber informants. For her part, Anne Zarin said, To think you show up to a concert and end up in a magazine. It's unheard of. We make celebrities real and real teens celebrities. This is the theme that keeps coming up in my interviews. Teen People was unique. That team were all very, very mindful and thoughtful about wanting a different magazine. They seemed to try to be a little different. It's a little bit different. There wasn't really anything like it in the market 
at that point. I mean, other amazing teen books, like 17 did. Karen Levis was my first guest, a children's picture book author and creative writing instructor. Karen was a Teen People intern in the late 1990s. She got her internship at Teen People through her friend and neighbor, Richard Stolley. Richard Stolley was a legendary figure in the American magazine business. He was a founding editor of People and is best known for acquiring the Zapruder film from Abraham Zapruder. The stills from his film of the Kennedy assassination were published in Life magazine, where Stolley worked just days after the president's death. And it was thanks to Richard Stolley's hustling that he scooped all the other journalists waiting outside Zapruder's home. So flash forward about 35 years, when Karen Levis was Richard Stolley's neighbor in New York. Karen was dismayed by the kinds of magazines her younger sister was reading, so Richard Stolley suggested she intern at this new magazine, Teen People, which he knew was going to launch the following year. Karen got an internship at Teen People and modeled lipstick in a beauty tutorial published in the November 1998 issue of Teen People, which I have in my collection. I asked Karen whether teen people actually ended up living up to her expectations of what she wanted to see in a magazine for teenage girls. So that's a good question because that was the whole reason I joined was because I had made this mock-up um, of, of a magazine being home from college one summer and I have a younger sister. And I was like, I remember like being in the bathtub looking through like, cause I never really read, I was into sassy and why I am for a bit. Um, but I was looking at, I think, her 17s, her, I don't remember which, which other ones, you know, whatever, her stack of magazines. And I was really, you know, at the height of being kind of waking up to that stuff. And I was really looking at it through her influence and how she was reading these magazines about losing weight and getting, you know, and what to wear and boys. And so um, I had made this whole mock-up of what a good magazine for, you know, young girls could be. And that was how I ended up at Teen People. Um, through Richard Stolley. My first job was being his cat sitter. Uh, and so when I kind of was like, I have this idea for a new magazine, let's make it. <laughs> he was like, there's a lot that goes into making a magazine. Why don't you intern? <laughs> and they didn't even have a formal internship program. So he always says that all he did was get me an interview. But like when Richard Stolley, I think, asked them to like meet his friend, <laughs> they were like, I guess we're going to have an internship program. <laughs> the editorial staff was feeling like, cause a lot of them came from, I think like YM and Sassy because they wanted to also have a better magazine and less advertising that was like diet pills and, you know, that kind of stuff. But so I learned a lot about how that happens, you know, like, and the assumptions that like, was one of my introductions to sort of systemic patriarchy and systemic racism um, in, in a real life way, because I learned about things like there'd never been like a young African-American teen boy on a national magazine of, um, I don't remember the details, but of whatever um, circulation number, you know, it was. Um, and female, like African-American models, like had not been alone on a cover. And I was learning this from these lifetime editors. And so it was really interesting to me to like learn that stuff there. And also about then the, how these higher ups are making the decisions of, who they think their audience is and what they're into. And it's like clothes, diet. There was this particular ad in all the magazines um, for years. I'd have to look for it. It was the same ad and had all this tiny print. And it was for this one diet pill and had this busty, like black and white image of a woman. And it was just, I just always thought that was just so awful. And um, so they were hopeful that they would be able to track different kinds of advertisers 
because of uh, the people name and the circulation that they were starting out with was larger. But at the time, it had a really good, positive feeling. And um, and I just thought the, the women I was, I mean, it was, there were men too, but uh, I really do remember the editors and um, assistant editors and that team were all very, very mindful and thoughtful about wanting a different magazine. Jenny Gorbach is an early childhood educator and the president of the California Kindergarten Association. When she was a teen, she joined Teen People's Trendspotter program, which was a core of thousands of teens from across North America who participated in focus groups and contributed original content to the magazine. So this is before social media, and as I've worked on this podcast, I can see that Teen People was actually anticipating what we do now on Twitter and Instagram. Teen People's Trendspotters sent selfies and letters and poems into the magazine. They answered poll questions and wrote vox pops about everything from underage drinking to personal finance. And all of that was aggregated and printed in the magazine with attribution. Teen People published their Trendspotters photos, full names, ages, and locations. Can you imagine being a 15-year-old kid seeing your face in a magazine? It must have felt like going viral today. Jenny told me that when she was a teen, she wanted to be famous. Being in Teen People was the closest she could come to reaching a level of fame she'd been dreaming of. And it highlights how Teen People really anticipated influencer culture. But they were doing it primarily in print. I'll discuss that a bit more with Teen People's entertainment director, Zena Burns. But here's a clip from Jenny's episode. In late high school, probably senior year, I, you know, I read these magazines and I, one of the pages said like, be a teen people trend spotter. And I was like, okay. And so I wrote in and I said, I want to be a teen people trend spotter. Actually, I think it was via email. This was probably in 2002 and I gave them my information. I don't remember what being a trend spotter entailed i think they sent me a lot of quizzes like do you like this fashion things like that i do remember they sent me chapstick or lip gloss and i love that you know i wanted the freebies <laughs> and i think i gave a review of it i wish i remembered more so i entered college as a trend spotter it wasn't a huge part of my life i, I read the magazine i loved it um i liked teen people because i was kind of a budding feminist um, but I still, you know, I still read Cosmo, so I wasn't like a true feminist, <laughs> but like I knew about Photoshop and I knew about, you know, body image disorders and, you know, things like that. And so I, I was sensitive to the media I consumed. It didn't prevent me from having <laughs> disordered body image, but, you know, I was aware of it. And so I liked teen people in that they tried to be, they seemed to try to be a little different. So, so I felt good being involved with that. I spoke with Robin Knutson in the summer of 2020, and she told me about her time as a Teen People Trendspotter. In January 2000, she was featured in the center of a full-page street-style shoot from Charlotte, North Carolina. Street style rose to prominence in the 2000s, and I think of Teen People as, again, anticipating that trend. The Sartorialist launched in 2005. Three years later, Tavi Gevinson started her own fashion blog, Style Rookie, where the teenager posted photos of herself in a domestic setting familiar to her young followers. 
The same year, Ari Seth Cohen began his own street-style project, blogging about fashionable women aged 60 and up in advanced style. And then Humans of New York launched in 2010, sharing stories and portraits of people of all ages found in the city's parks, bodegas, and subway stations. So you can see how at the same time as reality TV and blogging was taking off, people were hungry for content made by and for real people. And I think teen people helped popularize that trend with their own focus on real teens. Here's a bit from Robin, who shared her memories of scouting around Charlotte with a teen people photographer. It was so cool. Like, I, like I'm going to back us up for just a second to when I actually heard about teen people, I, th I think it was, I think it was on a commercial or in an insert in another magazine. It was either a flyer or commercial. And it said, you know, this new magazine's coming out. We need some um, people to show us what, what the culture and the trends are in each of your cities. And I said, okay, well, that sounds like something I'd like to do. You know, I like fashion. And so I, I applied and then somebody called me one day and said, Hey, you know, we need a transporter for Charlotte. We're doing uh, an article on that. And I said, okay, I'm going to jump on that. And when the photographer came down, uh, they wanted me to kind of brainstorm different areas that were like the cool places in Charlotte. So I, um, we met up with him at this, uh, it was like a little Japanese tea house so we met up there and then we just kind of rode around in his rental car and I'm I'm not sure if he was from Germany or something but I remember riding in that car and he played this German band is like a German industrial band I I just remember this photographer having extremely impeccable music taste so we're we're driving around and I remember one of the places was, um, I think it was the Arboretum. And uh, in the magazine, you can see a few, I think it's a few girls sitting together with their white leg pants. One of them, she actually went to school with us. I think we went to another um, movie theater, the Regal. And that's another hangout spot that we used to go to. And then... The best place, the place that I think we had the most fun at and the photographer definitely enjoyed going there, it was um, at Tremont Music Hall. And that was um, a little concert venue. And uh, and I don't know, I, we, just, we just lucked out that day, but like all my friends, it seemed like, were there. And I, I remember the, the photographer saying, oh, wow, you know, like, everybody here is just so, so colorful. And, and I thought, mm, you know, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot about Charlotte that I just kind of, I think you just, that I passed, passed over on that I didn't really think about, like that I didn't appreciate, you know, just going through high school. It's sometimes you just, ugh, you're just so full of angst and you can't really like appreciate the good things about it. But we did, we, we had a fairly good, alternative scene here I think lots of jewelry in our outfits like the little beaded um we'd make each other like little friendship bracelets out of beads and and patches and just wild hair colors and uh lots of piercings and that's all reflected in this 
street style shoot. Yeah. yeah, it's all there. So the photographer is credited. He's called Dirk Westfall. Dirk. Okay. Dirk. I I do remember one of the the highlights of it was how much fun that photographer had on in in the whole experience. Like he <laughs> just um uh, it, it was it was a delight to see um, him having fun throughout the whole experience, and I, I wish I had kept up with him. He's such an interesting person, um, and he threw out a, another good uh, band reference to me too. So, kudos to him. I mentioned reality TV a few minutes ago, and that's something Zena Burns and I talked about in our interview in 2020. Teen People was her first big media job, and she wasn't much older than the magazine's target audience. In the spring of 1999, she was in Chicago. One day, she passed a newsstand with a blow-up of Teen People's Lauren Hill cover on the wall. She stopped in her tracks. It was a beautiful cover, and at the time, as Karen Levis said, rather uncommon to see a black artist on the cover of a mainstream teen magazine. Zena was really moved by this. The next day, she was flying to New York to interview for the position at Teen People, and for her, this was a sign that Teen People was where she needed to be. I have to get that job, she said. I have to get that job. And she did. A big part of my job there was booking and executing these celebrity chats, and they were just text like type. There was no live streaming. There wasn't even the capability really to post a photo in real time. It was in most cases, me moderating, like being the moderator, taking questions from the audience and also listening to the artist on the phone and typing for them. And people People, tr people trusted us, I like to think, because we held ourselves to very high standards. Very often, a publicist would say, oh, so-and-so is going to be on a plane. Can I just answer for him? It's like, absolutely not. Like, we have a level of trust with our audience. If Usher is going to be on a plane, Usher needs to call me from the plane, and Usher would call me from the plane. Um, <laughs> and then you'd run into these low-tech issues. I'll never forget, Beyonce and Kelly Rowland called me from Disney World once. <laughs> and they were, and I had to, and the connection wasn't great on the cell phone. So, and I couldn't tell who was who, even though I knew their voices very well. It was just that it was a bad connection. And I was like, ladies, so that I can properly attribute your answers. Can you please just say your name at the beginning of your answer? I know it's a pain. I just want to get this right. And the connection isn't good. So at one point, Beyonce started with an answer and I was like, and I'm so sorry, is this Beyonce or Kelly? And she says, this is Beyonce and my voice tends to be a little bit lower and huskier than Kelly's. I'm like, no, no, no. I know the qualities of your voice. I just, the connection is bad. Like it was, so we were still able to connect the audience with the artists that they most cared about. But it was, when you look, when you see how things are done today, it was like with a tin can and a string, yeah. right? But part of what I, part of what I loved about it, even though, it was, it was very, very, very basic compared to the way we do things now is it was still connecting people with their passions, right? And the way that digital has evolved, it's just connecting people with their passions in a different, more robust way. Like we used to do those typing only chats, right? 
And then we'd get to the point where, okay, we add a visual element into it. You know, the Foo Fighters came into the office. Let's see if we can get a photo up real time with that type of thing. And then we started, you know, building digital programs, the amazing team that worked with our trend spotters, which were, you know, thousands of readers that we really relied on to give us honest feedback about, about their lives and the magazine and what was happening using digital to connect in those ways. There were um, amazing people on the Transpotter team who did that. And digital today is, is, has just made such a quantum leap. I mean, it's everything. It's changed the face of media. It's changed the face of publishing. It's, it, it, it's just changed everything. And I think that the companies and the brands that aren't digital first, um, are just aren't in a good position right now. Mm. If teen people had survived, how do you think they'd be doing today in today's digital climate? You know, I, one of the challenges with teen people was that I think one of the things we did right was that we took the dot-com very seriously. Um, at one point, I was entertainment director for the print book, and I was made managing editor, which is kind of timing's term for editor-in-chief of the website. And one of the thinkings there was that the company just wanted digital and the print book to be totally aligned. But at the end of the day, Teen People was a monthly book. And especially at the rate at which, and we were so rooted in celebrity. I mean, we were the baby book for people, right? So no matter how on point your website is, if your primary business is still tied around the monthly release of a magazine and the lead times to put out a monthly magazine are insane, insane. When you, when you think about the rate at which information travels these days, um, it's just difficult. It's just difficult when the whole business, especially for the young audience is tied around the release of, you know, a print book. Plus at the same time, there were other magazines that started to cover the types of stars that teen people really helped make mainstream. I'll never forget the pit in my stomach that I got the first time that People Magazine ran a Lindsay Lohan cover with a photo that was a red carpet photo from a teen people party where they just kind of photoshopped out the background, which they did, it wasn't anything about teen people. <laughs> but when you started seeing Lindsay Lohan on the cover of the Mothership publication, and then Justin Timberlake on the cover of Us Weekly and all of these things. It's like, oh, I don't know if this audience is going to hang out for a monthly anymore, no matter how on point our digital is and no matter how compelling our content is. If, if the base, I mean, obviously so, so much unbelievably amazing real, real kid content, real teen content in teen people. But from an entertainment perspective, it, I don't know that a monthly could have survived like that. Mm, that's a good point. And the other thing is that those celebrities were growing up and their fans were growing up too. And so mm -hmm. they weren't reading teen people anymore. They were reading people or us weekly. They were reading their mother's magazines. Exactly. And that's a really good point. And, and part of teen people was that, Hey, we always knew that audience was going to age out. Right. We always knew that audience was going to grow up. Hopefully they were going to age out into people and everything, but when the magazine started, I don't know that there was ever really a situation where the quote unquote big books like people would be covering the same stars at the same time. 
And, and that's one of the many things that ended up happening is that Lindsay Lohan would be on the cover of Teen People and People at the same time, which, you know, the, the whole face of celebrity was changing around that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the rise of reality TV as well. Huge part of it. Huge, huge, huge part of it. Yeah. Our final cover was Catherine McPhee or Carrie Underwood. Either Catherine McPhee or Carrie Underwood. They were around the same time. Uh, But, you know, both American Idol. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I almost wonder if, like, that reality TV era, the Paris Hilton and the the early Kardashian uh, and the the really short-lived reality, celebrity reality shows, um, were like a bridge between traditional print media for teens and social media. Yes, I I, I couldn't agree with you more because... You know, American Idol, which was groundbreaking in so many ways, there was an element of participation on like a big real TV show that hadn't really existed or existed on that plane before. Um, Smaller versions, yes. Um, So existed not only in the voting capacity and that type of participation, but also I could see myself on that show. I mean, I, Zena Burns, could never see myself on that show. I would not do that to um, to the American public. Um, but, um, but yeah, all of a sudden it was, hey, not only can I influence the outcome of this theoretically, but I could be Kelly Clarkson. Social media platforms started to further democratize celebrity where, well, if Kelly Clarkson can do it, Although Kelly Clarkson, incredibly capable, amazing, everything, but, you know, and I was just about to go left and say some unkind things about other people, (laughs) but I just won't go there. But really, this idea that anyone can do it, and in some ways, that's that's beautiful and empowering, and in some ways, it's a little bit dangerous um, with kids growing up thinking that everything they do is special, everything they do is worth putting out there and that's dangerous in very many ways um but I I, I think you're exactly right about that type of thing being the bridge Mm. so do you see teen people as maybe the first user-generated content because that trend spotter program seems like it gave kids all across America and beyond the opportunity to contribute to a magazine they wouldn't have had that opportunity in an earlier generation absolutely absolutely I'm so the team that worked on Trend Spotters was so passionate and so amazing. Janice Gadelli, uh, Christina Elby, Tristan Coopersmith, like, and so many other names that that um, so many other people who worked so hard on that. It really was about the the whole magazine was about real teens and. Trend Spotters were important because they were, you know, our focus group in a lot of ways. Not only would we reach out to trend spotters to be featured in the pages of the magazine, but we would, you know, regularly reach out to them get, to get real feedback about what was going on in their lives that helped shape the editorial. Even on the advertiser front, we would bring them in sometimes to talk to advertisers about like, like, what do you think about this? Where are things going? Just, just, it was so important every single people who worked at that magazine, whether they worked dedicated on the Trendspotter program or they worked in entertainment or they worked in fashion or they worked in real team coverage, that the magazine reflected the voice of, um, 
of the reader and of the of the teens that we were trying to reach. So yes, very much. Um, I, it was I think teen people both in print and digitally was a pioneer when it came to user generated content and really reflecting back the voice of the reader. In many cases, that was actual content that was generated from trans fathers. Another thing that I was tremendously proud of teen people for doing was not using professional models in the pages of the magazine. Like every quote unquote model you saw in that magazine, that was a real, that was a real kid. And I, I can't tell you, especially, especially being a lifelong big girl and, <laughs> and growing up a little heavier than my, uh, than, than the other kids at school. I, I cannot tell you just, just personally how moving it would be to me when we would do something like, um, the event that's now known as All Access Lounge before Z100's Jingle Ball at, at in New York. And it was kind of a daytime event for their big Jingle Ball holiday concert. We started that with them and part of it was a casting call where you know there'd be thousands of kids there. We would bring the entire fashion closet. We would bring Haley Hill and George Ramone and the whole fashion team. And we would pick kids out of the crowd to style right there right right there on site and then we'd take them backstage at Madison Square Garden where we built a set backstage and photographed them with the stars that were performing on stage at Madison Square Garden for Jingle Ball. That sounds awesome. <laughs> wow, you just just the just the pride and excitement in the eyes of kids who like had a good look and really like reflected what was going around them but would never be considered a professional model to be chosen. For this to to reflect the audience in a way that really no other teen magazine in that was doing at that point was was incredibly gratifying, especially to someone like me who did not grow up as a model. I spoke with fashion educator Dr. Ben Barry in the spring of 2021. Exactly 20 years earlier, Ben was featured on Teen People's list of teens who will change the world. He'd started a modeling agency in his hometown of Ottawa, Canada, and built up a roster of models of all sizes. Ben is now Dean of Fashion at Parsons School of Design. I asked him for a critical perspective on teen people's use of real teens instead of professional models. And as an expert in the field, Ben shared his thoughts on how that helped teen people stand out in the crowded teen magazine market and also paved the way towards the size diversity in fashion and beauty marketing that we see today. I don't think those, um, those movements and those like kind of interventions into how fashion worked probably got the credit that they deserved at that time. I know that like obviously one of sort of the big changes in the industry is when in 2005, um, the Dove campaign Real Beauty was launched the Dove campaign for real beauty. And that really was seen as, oh, they're using quote, real women. This is like a change for diversity. This is a big movement. But I think like places like Teen People, right, created those paths before, but I think because maybe they weren't seen as a fashion or beauty brand, they were seen as like a more entertainment brand. Maybe that that work went under the radar or went less acknowledged. Um, but I think that those, that was really paving the way, I think in terms of fueling that conversation. There were obviously decision makers around that time who were like, hey, you know, if we just cast models, our readers won't see themselves. Is this really reflecting them? Let's create a fashion editorial that's a little bit different. Unfortunately, the magic couldn't last. As its millennial audience reached their 20s, teen people struggle to maintain their readership. Their last issue was published in 2006. 
A year after Teen People folded, Advertising Age published an article called, plaintively, Where Have All the Girls Gone? In the 2007 story, the trade publication recorded the beginnings of a shift in how young women were consuming media. It's not that young women are completely abandoning magazines, it's that they've added other types of media, said Advertising Age. They actually quoted a former Teen People publisher, who at the time had two daughters, aged 17 and 19. My girls, he said, when there was a lot of homework being done, would be online, watching TV, listening to music, flipping through magazines, and doing their homework all at the same time. I actually went to their guidance counselor and said, is this normal? She said, absolutely yes, this is the new normal. As Zena Burns pointed out, the face of celebrity and the pace of technology were changing so quickly. A monthly print magazine with a short window of relevance to its aging readers just couldn't last. But it was a magical time. That's the message my guests have shared with me. They love talking about their teenage selves and how much it meant to be featured in Teen People magazine. James Frankie Thomas appeared in Teen People's 2004 prom issue. They were photographed for a feature about prom makeup, modeling smooch-proof lips and a spaghetti-strapped gown. At the time, James blogged about the experience, writing from the big family computer about being scouted and photographed for teen people. They shared excerpts from the blog in our interview, but also excitedly recounted the story about how they were plucked off the streets of New York into the teen people studios, like a millennial Eliza Doolittle. So I went to high school in Lower Manhattan. In um, I went to a friend's seminary, which is a school on East 16th Street. The nearest public square to my high school was Union Square, which is a really, I don't know how well you know New York City. Uh, it's a really big public square with a lot of subway lines, a lot of traffic, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of protests happen there, and it's where the it's where the Hare Krishnas hang out. It's where they have a farmer's market. It's just like a really big, busy thoroughfare. And lots of other high schools are near there too. So there's a lot of teens. I say all this for context because teens at my school were constantly getting scouted for Teen People magazine. It happened all the time. It happened to the girls at my school who were the most beautiful. It happened first, I think, to my classmate, Olivia Thurlby, who was so beautiful. She went on to become a movie actress. She was a gorgeous, gorgeous girl, always. And so it just made sense that she got scouted to appear in Teen People. She was photographed with her boyfriend. They did like a couple shoot. It was very cute. And then some other girls I knew got scouted too under the same circumstances. It was just like a revolving door of beautiful girls from my school getting scouted. So naturally, you know, we all hoped that we would be the next one. It was a fantasy, but actually a fairly realistic fantasy based in reality that like maybe one day I'll be walking through Union Square and then teen people will come to me. So like I fantasized about it. And in my case, the fantasy came true. One day in my junior year of high school, I was crossing Union Square with my friend Ree, who was another theater kid. And we got stopped right on the street by this lady, you know, she seemed pretty nondescript, but Rhea and I were tough New Yorkers, so our instinct was to like ignore her and walk really fast because she probably, we thought, was panhandling or something weird. But she caught up with us, she chased us down, and she said, hey, my name is Carolyn, I am a modeling scout for teen people, and, and like Rhea and I did not even let her finish, we just started screaming, <laughs> we started screaming and jumping up and down, like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, 
like it's so funny she had no id really she had no credentials she could have been a sex trafficker and we would have given over all our information like we did uh and luckily she was from teen people but man like in retrospect what a great way to kidnap girls to pretend to be from teen people in union square we had absolutely zero skepticism no no questions just sign away our life rights firstborn child we were thrilled we bragged to everybody and then then the awkward thing happened which was a few weeks what later, was the awkward I... thing that happened next Find out in James's episode, My True Gender is Theater Kid, the James Frankie Thomas story. James's connection to teen people continued when they were later recruited to help scout more teens for the magazine. Flash forward now to my senior year of high school. I get an email out of nowhere from this lady, Carolyn, who I have not thought of since our correspondence a year ago. She reached out to my AOL address and emailed me and said, Hey, Frankie, remember me? I'm from Teen People. I scouted you on the street and I'm still working as a modeling scout for Teen People, but I just had knee surgery and I can't run after girls the way I used to do. It has really slowed me down and I could really use a helper who is young and strong to chase after the girls for me and be like my right hand man as I go scouting. Would you like to be my helper? And again, like zero skepticism, zero anything. I was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. So we made a standing weekly date. I think it was Thursday afternoons. She would come pick me up at school. And that was my very first job. Every Thursday, Carolyn and I would meet up. We would hang out in Union Square. And Carolyn just taught me all the behind the scenes of how teen people scouted their real girl models. Uh, it was interesting. It was not as easy as I thought it would be. It was not as easy for one thing to guess which girls teen people would be interested in photographing. Like there were some girls who I thought were so cute and Carolyn would look at them and be like, ah, oh, that's not really the teen people look, not in a mean way, just like Carolyn knew what she, you know, she had a directive to follow. And other times I would see a young woman who I thought was gorgeous, just like stunning. And I would say, oh my God, Carolyn, we got to go for her. And Carolyn would look at her, give her one look and say, oh, she's a professional. One time we flagged down a college girl and it turned out she couldn't work for us because she had already taped her appearance on the upcoming season of America's Next Top Model. This is a, this is a hazard of scouting in New York City is all the real teens are interspersed with real models. Uh, sometimes it was less dignified than that. There was one very difficult week when we had a directive from editorial. They were working on a jeans spread where they wanted to showcase jeans for every possible body type. But you know, this is 2005, so that's still pretty limited. And one of the instructions we had was they specifically wanted us to find a girl. This was the quote. They wanted us to find a girl with a butt like JLo. We were standing outside a high school. It was the Martin Luther uh, King Jr. High School uh, and LaGuardia, they're right next to each other. And we were just like standing there, like very discreetly, like checking out the butt of every girl who walked past. And I would like whisper to Carolyn, what about her butt? Would you say that's a JLo butt? And we'd have to be like, uh, I don't know if that's, uh, no, try it, go for it. it. It was incredibly awkward and degrading for everybody involved, but uh, they did end up doing that shoot. Oh, you know who was in that shoot actually was Nanja Spiegelman, who ended up being my editor at the Paris Review. She was one of the jeans models in that shoot. She writes about this in her memoir, which is called I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and which I recommend. 
but it was so much fun. And it was especially fun because on the occasions when we did succeed in flagging down a real teen who was eligible to model for us, oh my God, we just made her day. It was, it's so amazing to get to make someone that happy, like to have the power to put that kind of smile on a girl's face. I remember there was one girl who we scouted in Union Square who just didn't believe us. She was hanging out with her guy friends and they were giving her so much shit and saying, oh, I remember her name was Jackie. They were saying like, oh, Jackie, this woman, this girl, they're clearly scammers. Like, don't sign up with them. Who would ever want you to be a model? You could never be a model. Like, come on, who, who do you think you're kidding? But we, uh, we convinced her and she did appear in Teen People. And then we ran into her again a few weeks later and she just ran up to us and gave us the biggest hug and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was the best day of my life. And I felt so beautiful. And she started telling us about how she wrote poetry in her spare time. It just seemed like she had blossomed, maybe not as a result of teen people, but it was just nice to get to see this girl in two different points in her high school life. And to know that, you know, that we had played a role in giving her, if nothing else, a really nice day. And I'm still happy about that. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> James summed up the experience like this. They said, You come into people's lives for two seconds and you think about them forever. I wanted to know so many of these girls. You can meet more of these folks on my podcast. Next time, I'll talk with Amar Shah about his work on the Teen People News team. I focused on fashion and entertainment in this episode, but Teen People also mentored high school and university-age journalists with the Teen People News Team, an early remote work opportunity that gave these kids some of their very first bylines. We know that Teen Vogue has set a high bar for young adult media, but again, I think Teen People laid the foundations for that kind of journalism for use, in part because their parent publication was known for current events coverage as much as their celebrity coverage. Teen People covered LGBT and reproductive rights, as well as some of the biggest stories of that era, such as 9-11 and the wars that followed, Columbine and Hurricane Katrina. So join me next time for my interview with Amar Shah, who spoke with me about hustling his way onto the Teen People News team. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and leave a rating or review. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper. Happy birthday, teen people.